I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles, and if you don't have one that you brought, then reach there in front of you and grab a pew Bible, and turn with me to James chapter 3. I'm calling these supplemental, or we might even say complementary passages of Scripture to the message. Um, and I hope we can see the connection between them, uh, even though I'm not preaching these passages in particular. But I would like to, for us to share together uh, from James chapters 3 and 4 and then turn to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. So the first one is James chapter 3, beginning with verse 13 and running to the end of the chapter with verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him or her show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Amen. Now turn with me to chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. May even be on the same page. I'm going to jump up to verse 6 because it really is the context for what follows. Chapter four of James, verse six. But he, that being God, gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I just wanna note here, this is sometimes given as a bit of a formula for spiritual warfare, and almost always the submit to God part is left out. It does not say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It says, submit yourselves to God, and in your submission to God, resist the devil. And as you submit yourself to God and resist the devil in your submission, he will flee from you. That's what this text says. Submit yourselves to God then, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. 
Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Very similar message from Peter as we got from James. In fact, uh, I'll start at verse 5 and you'll see that we've got the same context here. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together for a moment. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you. Help us to submit ourselves to you and to humble ourselves before you and to as we are submitting ourselves to you and humbling ourselves before you, may we be in a position then to resist the devil and be in a position to see him fleeing from us. Not because of us, but because you are living and working in our lives because you are standing behind our submission and our humility before you. You are standing behind our resistance. You are the one from whom the devil flees, not us. And as we talk about, Lord, these three weeks, last week, this week, and next, about what it means that you have been at war against sin and death since before the foundation of the world and you continue on that battle and though you struck a death blow into death and sin at, at the death of Christ on the cross, it's still being worked out and we're still looking forward to a time when a victorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would set all things straight and would banish, banish all evil and the suffering that evil has caused in this world and is causing and will cause. And help us to, with hope, trust you, believe you, and obey you as you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word in Holy Scripture and in the word made flesh, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.
So, in the fourth chapter of John's first letter, not John's gospel, which is near the beginning of the New Testament, but the first of his three letters near the end of the New Testament, we learn gratefully and with no small amount of relief that the God of the Bible, the God who is, is love. In a very real and profound way, that statement, God is love, essentially summarizes the testimony of the whole Bible. The testimony of the whole Bible of the being, character, and action of the God who is. This ultimate understanding of God, that he is love, is no more obvious than when it comes to God's being, character, and action revealed and made manifest in Jesus Christ. And John reiterates both explicitly and by implication this fundamental and eternal truth about God's sovereign being, his eternal character, and his saving action. God is love. From verse 7, chapter 4 of 1 John, speaking encouragement and truth to his fellow disciples of Jesus, including us, John, our big brother in Christ, writes by the Holy Spirit from verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or completed in us. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I've been chewing on that amazing and profound truth and testimony from John about our God this week, that he is love, but from an entirely surprising angle, at least it was for me. 
And I've also realized that this angle might also be quite helpful for all of us in our current conversation about God being at war. In the heavenlies and on the earth, quite literally having set himself, his whole triune being, from eternity past against sin, death, and the sources of sin and death. If we believe that God is altogether holy, altogether righteous, altogether just, altogether loving, and all-powerful, as the Bible summarily presents him to be, then he must, by nature, be set against their opposites. Sin, corruption, hatred, injustice, exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable, and death. He must be. So here was the question as it was posed to me last week after the message uh, sometime. If God is love, and we are to love God with our whole selves and our neighbors as ourselves, how are we to love Vladimir Putin? How are we to pray for Vladimir Putin, perhaps the most villainous enemy of our day, as Jesus himself taught us to do, to pray for our enemies? Now, before I answer that necessary, albeit uncomfortable question, or those two uncomfortable questions, having stewed with them for the last week or so, I'd like for us to review the central truth from last week and also from this week both of which are printed there in the bulletin for you. The bracketed statement in blue is a lightly edited version of last week's central truth, and the unbracketed statement in red is this week's central truth. I wanted us to see the connection between the two of them. That's why I've printed them both there, so it makes it look like a really long thing. It's not nearly as long as uh, it looks. It is long, but it's not as long as it looks. Let's look at them. First from last Sunday. God has set himself, his whole triune self, against sin and death from eternity past, even as sin spread in unto death to and throughout humanity and the whole of creation. This war is ongoing until Jesus Christ returns once for all and forever as victorious Lord. Now, I, I feel like I must apologize to those of you who weren't with us last Sunday, because I know many of you, including my own wife and daughter, were downstairs in the fellowship hall and in the kitchen preparing for our luncheon that we had, and wasn't it great? So thank you all for that. Um, and the reason I feel I need to apologize to you is that today's sermon depends heavily on the beginning of this series from last Sunday. But hopefully the central truth will help to catch you up, if not entirely, at least some to make it coherent. And here it is one more time. God has set himself, his whole self, against sin and death from eternity past, even as sin spread unto death to and throughout humanity and the whole of creation. And kind of a post postscript, this war is ongoing until Jesus Christ returns once 
for all and forever as victorious Lord. And now perhaps we can see the connection of that to today's central truth, which is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ joins him in this ongoing spiritual battle, waiting for our victorious Lord Jesus Christ to set all things to the good, right, and true. As we saw last week, this battle, this war, began before the foundation of the world. It continues on today as the result of the devil's rebellion against God and his assault on God's throne, God's word, and God's authority, both in the heavenlies and on the earth. In other words, everywhere. Having become captivated with his own power and beauty, both of them given him by God as gifts fundamental to God's awesome design for him, the devil deceived himself and up to one-third of the heavenly host into believing that he could be and that he should be God. I can't help but pause to comment here. It was the devil who first rebelled against God's good and sovereign design for him and who sought to do his own things his own way. But he has somehow passed on that proclivity to us, and we've been rebelling against God's good and sovereign order ever since. Today, in ways unimaginable, just a short while ago. One proof or example is that today, just putting on our sign outside, as we did a few weeks back in support of our biblical Christians, Who Are We? sermon series, that God has created us male and female, is somehow, suddenly it would seem, controversial, off-putting, even offensive. Then a couple of Sundays ago, we saw how the devil and his minions are eternally fixed in their states of rebellion and sin against holy God, never to be forgiven or saved. The devil and his demons are not mortal like us, our earthly lives leading to physical death. They are more like God in that they are fundamentally spirit and not flesh. They inhabit the heavenlies. And they know what they are doing with a kind of perfect knowledge. Not all knowledge, mind you, but full knowledge, complete knowledge of what they were doing and what they continue to do. Their rebellion against God was not for lack of knowledge. They knew and they know who God is. They knew and they know him to be omniscient, knowing all things at all times perfectly wise. Omnipresent, everywhere present simultaneously. Omnipotent, that is almighty. And they joined together, the devil and his demons, to rebel and go to war with God anyway. Not smart. That's not any sort of wisdom that works. This is why the Bible never contemplates the devil's repentance or God's forgiving of him. Neither is ever going to happen. While Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, he certainly did not die for the devil. It's also why the Bible insists that the battle is spiritual. God's word assures us the battle is the Lord's, and yet we have a part to play. 
This spiritual battle, this war in the heavenlies, spills over into and it impacts the material world. This was never more obvious than in Eden with the fall of humanity into sin. It's also on terrible and tragic display these days in Ukraine and elsewhere. Wherever human beings are killing each other, whether by individual or army against army, And beyond that, every war on the earth is a reflection of this war in the heavenlies. So it is also beyond us. We are incapable of achieving peace on the earth or in the heavenlies. So I'd like to ask you now to turn with me to our sermon text, beginning with 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in fact, I'm just going to stay in 2 Corinthians 10 this morning. And we'll pick it up at Ephesians 6 next week. And as we turn to 2 Corinthians 10, allow me to say a brief word about the importance of growth. I have prayed and I continue to pray, and I mentioned it last week, that God give us an open mind and open hearts to be taught, to, to be taught things new in the scriptures, to see it for the first time, perhaps, as the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to understand, I know all of us who have been Christians for more than a week or two have, have had the experience of reading a passage of scripture that you know that you know that you know that you've read 10 times maybe, but, but on the 11th time you see something different. How did I miss that, right? So that's the kind of openness we need to have when we come to God's word and we hear God's word taught and preached, uh, the gospel preached. And so I'm hoping that we have that sort of uh, openness because We ought to be growing people. We born-again Christians should always be growing, not fixed, but growing in Christian maturity our whole lives. This means we're growing in knowledge, in wisdom, in character, in empathy, in grace, in hope, in love, in compassion, in joy, and in peace our whole lives, all of us. Increasingly in the direction of reflecting the image of God in Christ Jesus, and representing him on the earth more truly. Just as a personal confession, I've been learning and growing these weeks and months. On on that topic that it was an expression of God's grace that he locked them out of the, the garden so that they couldn't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and therefore become in a sense, immortal and sinful, like the devil. I had somebody come up to me and he said, I didn't realize that and I'd never heard that before. And I said, neither have I. But it's in the text. There it is, right there. So we need to be open and we need to grow and And I've been learning and growing these weeks and months. Somehow the Lord Jesus is showing me more of himself and his ways, even what he wants us to do as his church. And I do hope my learning and growing translates into becoming more like Jesus and represent him better on the earth, or at least just here at Bethesda. Okay, also to the world. Wouldn't it be great and awesome to be doing that together as a church, a whole church in this, our place and time, growing truly together. At the same time, we recognize that that's the Christian life, this growing thing, and it's Jesus Christ's intention for his people, this growing thing, assembled together by his word and spirit into local churches. It also means we join him in his battle, his war here on the earth, and yes, even in the heavenlies, and this is precisely what we read in 2 Corinthians 10. 
Paul is literally pleading once again for the full and unfettered fellowship and partnership of those in the Corinthian church and us by faith and by extension. Here's his underlying point. Paul's conflict and battle, our conflict and our battle, is not now, nor was it ever ever with or against our fellow Christians, leaders, and churches. I'll say that one more time. Paul's conflict and battle, our conflict and our battle, is not now, nor is it ever with or against our fellow Christians, leaders, and churches. If we are truly born-again Christians, if we are true churches made up of born-again Christians, then we are never, ever each other's enemy. Never. We have a common enemy. That's true in the devil. But he is not me and he is not you. We are not each other's enemy, nor will we ever be. Rather, we are partners in the gospel with Jesus. This is sometimes really hard to accept or hard to believe or hard to practice, especially over the long term in the church. Not least because the devil works really hard to convince us otherwise that you are my enemy because you oppose me in this way or that way or we have a different opinion or thought about something. Also, many, many church people and sadly even many church leaders. I'm not talking here about Bethesda in particular. I'm talking about the church at large have still to grow into truly spiritually mature Christians, that is, being consistently led and governed in life, relationships, thought, and actions by God's Word and the Holy Spirit, rather than by our flesh. To be led and governed consistently by God's Word and the Holy Spirit, we must be born again. It's that simple. And our leaders especially must be born again. And as time marches on, we must do our best to ensure that the church and her leaders are, above all things, born again. But we have so many different experiences, so many different viewpoints, and so many people come, stay a while, and go, and a very few stay for a lifetime. It's a miracle we don't blow the place up every other year, or at least every other decade. It really is. And yet, if we can agree... If we can remember, and if we can remind each other from time to time that we are not each other's enemy, but each other's brother, sister, mother, father, cousin, and friend, we will not be divided or defeated by the devil, and the Holy Spirit will be in us and with us. So so how can we do that? Well, here's a starting point. We can assume the best and not the worst of each other. We can hope and pray for God's best for each other. We can relate respectfully and sincerely with everyone. We can refuse to be divided against each other, then we'll experience the joy and freedom of Jesus' presence and his productivity among us. And I have to say, I think we're experiencing some of that. And I'm thankful. Both to you and also to him. Because it truly is a spiritual fruit. Please look with me there as Paul pleads with the Corinthians in chapter 10 of his second letter to them. From verse 1 we read, I, Paul, myself. You hear that? That's three times. 
I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect, read, accuse, us of walking according to the flesh. I've been in Paul's place here several times, as every pastor has over, you know, if they stick to it for any length of time at all. It's a very strange thing to be doing your level best, to be doing God's work and to be doing so with the good of all in view, but someone or some number of someones chooses to oppose you that they will now be against you. It's not pleasant, it's not easy, and it's not right, and it's not happening here at Bethesda. I'm just expositing the text with some experience. After almost 30 years, not quite, but almost 30 years. Sadly, when that happens, I found it's virtually impossible to get back to trust, to get back to goodwill, to get back to believing in each other, or at least Christ in each other. Yet Paul pleads with such Corinthians, he begs them even, to come back into fellowship with him, to give up their suspicions and accusations, to think better of him and of themselves. Because that suspicion comes from somewhere. Those accusations come from somewhere. Jesus said, from out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It comes from somewhere within. There's another shorthand way of putting what Paul is calling for and what I've just described. You've likely heard it before, though maybe not in this context. It's spiritual warfare. That is actual warfare conducted in and directed to and from the heavenlies, but often with huge implications, often with huge impacts, often with huge influences, and often with huge consequences, both good and bad, on the earth. Please notice this striking difference. The devil does most, if not all, of his warfare in the flesh, and that is by pitting human beings, people groups, and even whole nations against each other. Wherever human beings, God's image bearers and representatives on the earth can be hurt most, that is precisely where he goes. Not only that, he also drives human beings to exploit and deface God's creation. In contrast... God in Christ Jesus gave himself up to destroy the works of the devil. That we might live, flourish, and never die. That we might once again live in harmony with the rest of God's creation. And that God might restore and reconcile all things to himself, including us. And God's true ministers aspire never to do war in the flesh. We fail sometimes, but we, we do give it our best, asking the Lord to, to help us, to forgive us, to restore us, and to continue to work in us and through us, not giving up on us. But we do do battle in the heavenlies. I love that song. We'll do our fighting on our knees. I, that, was, that was a 
That was a great song. And not against other human beings, flesh and blood, as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 6 next week. But against the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, in the heavenly places, or, or more accurately from the text, in the heavenlies. And that is against the purposes of the devil and his minions with potentially high beneficial, rather huge beneficial, even eternal impacts for us who are still here on the earth. And that's where Paul goes next, writing by expiration of the Holy Spirit when he says in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we walk, though we live, that's what he's saying, though we live, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And one of the things that means is that he is not against them. He is not working against them. He is not praying against them. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging the war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, if we're not careful, we might think that Paul is writing another defense of his apostolic authority here. He is writing as the founding apostle of the church of Corinth. That much is true. But he is appealing to their mutual faith, their mutual hope that are in Christ Jesus alone. Literally, his brothers and sisters in Christ. An apostle exerting his authority from on high does not say things such as, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, or I beg of you. He's not coercing, he's inviting. He's pleading. Many analysts of leadership have noted that positional authority is the weakest sort of authority, and Paul knows this, and he is not exerting it. Here, Paul is appealing, not as apostle, but as loving spiritual father to those who've set themselves in opposition against him, accusing him of some malfeasance or other. He's pleading with wayward spiritual children to come home to be reconciled both to him and to God in Christ. To the extent that we become divided against each other, to the extent that we set ourselves against each other or others in the church, regardless of how supposedly righteous our indignance, to that extent we are joining in with the deeds of the devil. We just are. So as James said, wisdom that comes from the devil that leads to division Separation. Jesus said the devil comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He said the thief, but he's talking about the devil. But that he has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. Just as there's a striking contrast between those two motivations and outcomes, so it is with our practice in the church. A parallel, then, in this matter of spiritual warfare might be the devil seeks to distract, divide, and destroy along fleshly lines of vulnerability and weakness, while Jesus calls us to engage in his battle above that fray to employ spiritual weapons that destroy strongholds. Strongholds. What is a stronghold and where did that come from? The Canadian OED, Oxford English Dictionary, 
defines a stronghold as one, a fortified place, two, a secure refuge, or three, a center of support for a cause. Okay, so what sort of stronghold is Paul talking about here in 2 Corinthians 10? Well, he tells us in verse 5, doesn't he? Look with me there, and we'll finish with this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So the stronghold that Paul is talking about in verse 4 is made up of arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and even, it would seem, include every thought that does not obey Christ or is not in obedience to Christ. Paul defines a stronghold, and particularly we must be aware, a stronghold in the church because he's talking to the church as arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there have been many arguments and lofty opinions that have emerged, including in the church, against the knowledge of God in our day. A couple of months ago, I was interviewed uh, by Sylvia St. Cyr of CHVN, and some of you heard that, and I heard back from you, hey, I heard you on the radio today. Some of you said that before I even heard me on the radio. And at the end, she asked me, what would be your one prayer for the church in Winnipeg? Wow. And my response was something like, I'm I'm paraphrasing myself because I don't have every word memorized. It was kind of in the moment. But my response was that we would have a similar probably can't get there to have the same, but a similar view of the truth. The truth of God in in God's word and especially the way we apply it in our lives here in Winnipeg. And I said, "What what we're doing and what we're speaking, what we're saying can't be the truth because there are so many different versions of it. I think Paul would say there are so many arguments and lofty opinions against the knowledge of God in the church. And we need to get back to a thoroughly, radically, relentlessly biblical approach to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To what it means to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not our church, but his church. And I know in many ways I'm I'm preaching to the choir here and I don't mean to do that. But it's right here in the text. It is the spiritual war that we are to be engaged in. Here and elsewhere, Paul makes clear that this is a reliable indicator of spiritual warfare being waged. That is, arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God are are reliable indicators of spiritual warfare being waged against us and spiritual warfare worthy of our engagement. And to be sure, we must engage in the battle, though not every battle is ours, perhaps. I don't think we need to fight battles that are not present in the particular local church in which Jesus has placed us. 
No, if, if we are living the true Christian life and if we are conducting ourselves as a true Christian church, we won't have to go looking for fights. They will come to us. The problem is when we allow them to invade our space, to come in from the outside and begin to churn and distract and divide and destroy. Indeed, we all have an ongoing inner battle that Paul alludes to, don't we? It's the pitched battle for our minds where a right mind might be defined as a mind trained by and attuned by God's word in Christ. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is spiritual warfare. And there's a sense in which we must be waging this spiritual war all the time in the battle for our right minds, both individually and collectively, as men and women, boys and girls, but also as families and whole churches. Let's be in our own right biblical minds. We also need to prepare and be ready at all times for broader expressions of this battle. If we don't prepare, and if we aren't ready, we'll be caught unaware, unprepared, and the battle, when it comes to us, and it will come, will not go well. We will be divided against each other. Another colloquial way of saying that is, we ain't got nothing for the devil. He's been doing this gig for a long time. He knows how to divide and destroy. This has happened throughout history of the church. It's happened throughout the history of Bethesda Church, including recently, but in micro divisions, I might say. One person, one family, maybe two at a time, picked off and driven away. But the witness of God's word today is that it need not happen. It is not inevitable. This is where I'd like to pick it up next week with God at War 3, and I promise it'll be the last sequel. There's not going to be a God at War 4 or 5 or 6 or 7. And we'll look at our more familiar passage on the topic of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. And remember what the big picture is. The big picture is that God has been at war with sin and death and the sources of sin and death since before the foundation of the world and his biggest Assault on evil, on sin and death in this battle was at the cross. And that's where we're headed. And he will restore all things to himself. All things. Make all things right, good, and true. But that's a little bit beyond us right now. We read about it in Revelation in a number of places. But before we go, there is an outstanding matter that we haven't or I haven't dealt with yet. And that is the matter of love for Vladimir Putin. How are we to love Vladimir Putin? How are we to pray for Vladimir Putin, perhaps the most villainous enemy of our day as Jesus taught us to do? I have a few thoughts that I'd be glad for you to join me in chewing on for a bit. Number one, I think we pray for, or perhaps I can even use the preposition against, Vladimir Putin in the same way that we might pray for or against the devil. Not that he is the devil, but he's clearly doing the devil's work these days and showing himself, 
who he is beyond any likely return. So, as with the devil, we pray that Putin will be restrained. Pray that he will be restrained. Number two. While Vladimir Putin is not beyond God's reach, I think he's likely beyond ours. Consequently, perhaps our energies, including our prayers, might be better used to intercede on behalf of Putin's victims. How can we help them? How can we love them in their time of trouble? Let's do that. Thirdly and finally, while the Bible makes clear that God hates the devil, his minions, and many others who oppose him, his word, and his ways, as well as those who bring death and destruction upon those who are created in his image to represent him on the earth, I advise against any form of hate, including toward those who so richly deserve to be hated. Hate is a deadly toxin to the human mind, heart, and soul. It's so toxic and deadly that we cannot afford to harbor it in any form or for any purpose or at any time. So instead of hate, let's do our best to love God, to love each other, to love our neighbor, even our neighbor's neighbor, including all the way to Ukraine and Africa and the Middle East and China and India And trusting it all to God's capable care, never avenging ourselves, but leaving it to God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This has been God at War 2. Let's pray together. God, our Father, these are troubling times, not particularly more troubling than other times that your people have gone through, but troubling for us, perhaps the most troubling for us that we've ever experienced, maybe. I'm sure that those who sent their sons and fathers, in some few cases, their daughters and sisters and mothers off to the Second World War would say that that was a, an exceptionally trying time, and I, I agree with that. But Lord, this is a time unsettled like no other since then, for sure. And we need your intervention. We need for you to restrain Vladimir Putin and his minions from more death and destruction and ambitious, high-minded power, abuse, and corruption. As I just said, I think he's beyond us, but I know for sure he's not beyond you. I pray for the Russian people who are led by such a person, 
however he got there. They certainly did not elect him to be there. And for the Ukrainian people, Lord, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we, we have begun a correspondence, I pray that you would lead us how we can be helpful, how we can love them where they are from here. And Lord, I thank you for this church, this church which since July of 1944 has stood for and on your word. and who expects her preachers to stand for and on your word. And we, we are doing our best to do that by faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you give us some comfort, some solace, some encouragement from your word this morning and apply it by your spirit to our hearts and our minds and allow us to come back again next week. In Jesus' name, amen.